Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Thanks for stopping by one more time today. Government corruption in both sides of the aisle has been a sore spot through the ages of this country really doesn't matter what happens while a particular party's in control. Seems that whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, those who support the party will bend over backwards to justify their actions. Seems that once a person is committed to a particular side, they could be shown a video of their party's leader beating babies to death with puppies and kittens and it wouldn't sway their support wonder what ever happened to let us not seek the Democratic answer or the Republican answer, but the right answer. Well, I personally know that there are great police officers out there. I also know that there's a complete power-hungry morons with badges out there, too, who are up to their eye lobes in corruption. Come on in, folks. Grab yourself, sit down, tune your ears, and let me tell you about the Battle of Athens, Tennessee, because... When folks have had enough, well, you can only push folks so far, you know. Now, I would start this off with once upon a time, but that would be indicative of a fairy tale. This good folks ain't no fairy tale. It's all very true. So let's start back at the beginning of what would lead the good citizens of McKinn County, Tennessee to having a gut full of the corrupt politicians that tried to rule over them with an iron fist or their jack-booted thugs, shall we? Now, in 1936, the Edward Hull, Boss Crump, political machine based in Memphis, Tennessee, that controlled the majority of Tennessee, wished to expand its reach to McKinn County by nominating Paul Cantrell as the Democrat candidate for sheriff and hoped that by doing so they would install another boss in McKinn County. Now, you might be wondering why they call them bosses. Well, a boss is a person that controls the local branch of a political party. They don't necessarily need to even hold a political office to get things done, and historically most of them didn't, at least 
during the times of the greatest influence anyway. The actual office holders are the ones subordinate to the one boss in the party and in and all the affairs that come up in that party. Bosses base their power on the support of voters from precincts in which, once in power, they control and manage. When the party wins, and they always do under the boss system, they are in complete control of all elected officials. They can then enact laws as they see fit to benefit themselves. People who lived under the boss system usually know that the bosses are corrupt, but are pretty much powerless to stop them without the use of force. Just to illustrate how much influence Boss Crump had, he dominated Tennessee state politics from the 1920s to the 1940s. He was elected and served as mayor of Memphis from 1910 to 1915 and again in 1940. Then, when he wasn't holding the office himself, he personally appointed every mayor elected from 1950 up until the time of his death in 1954 make that 1915 until 1954. He was also a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1931 to 1935. So, that brings us back to 1936 when Boss Crump decided he wanted himself a piece of McKinn County and nominated future Boss Paul Cantrell for sheriff. Now, Now, Boss Cantrell, who came from a fairly rich family of folks in nearby Etowah, tied his campaign to the coattails of FDR and his campaign and was dragged to victory over his opponent in what came to be known as the Great Vote Grab of 1936, which delivered McKinn County to Boss Crump on a silver platter. Now, Paul Cantrell was elected sheriff in 1936, 1938, and again in 1940 elections and was elected to the state senate in 1942 and 1944 while his former deputy pat mansfield a transplanted georgian was elected sheriff in 1940. now once elected the first thing boss cantrell did was gerrymander the voting districts to his advantage now you might be wondering what exactly gerrymandering is but well it's a practice intended to establish an unfair political advantage for a party by moving around district boundary lines. There are two tactics used in gerrymandering. The first is called cracking. That's where they redraw the boundaries in such a way as to water down the voting power of an opposing party. In other words, they redraw the district boundaries in such a way as to spread thin the opposing party's voting base by putting them into districts where they can't possibly win. Now, The second tactic is called packing. That's when they concentrate all the opposing party's power into one district to reduce their voting power in other districts. In other words, if there's too many to crack apart, then they'll just pack them all together in one district and gladly give that one up to win all the others. A state law later enacted in 1941 further reduced the opposition to Boss Crump's officials by reducing the number of voting precincts from 23 to 12, and reducing the number of justices of the peace from 14 to 7, four of which were on the take from Boss Cantrell. Starting in, ni- <clears throat> excuse me, starting in 1936, the sheriff and his deputies were paid under a fee system whereby they received money from every person they booked, incarcerated, and released. The more arrests 
the other more money they made, yeah, that'll work out, won't it? <laughs> because, because of this, they were politically arresting people and holding their mouths wrong in public. And uh, buses even passing through the country were pulled over and the passengers were taken down for drunkenness, regardless of whether they'd even had a drink or not. Between 1936 and 1946, these fees amounted to almost $300,000. Now, that's $5.5 million in today's money, folks. Over that much, actually. Citizens in McCann County had long been concerned about political corruption and election fraud. The U.S. Department of Justice had investigated allegations of election fraud in 1940, 1942, and in 1944, but had not taken any action. Now, sound familiar? Well, voter fraud, vote control, and voter intimidation just compounded McKinn County's problem. They jerk people around with a poll tax and steal the ballot boxes at gunpoint and take them to a secure location, of course, for counting. It even became common for dead voters to show up and cast one for the boss can trail machine. And that wasn't all. Everything was compounded by the sheriff being on the take from the gambling and bootlegging rackets that were permitted to go on as long as he didn't see nothing, as long as a sack full of money mysteriously appeared on his desk once a month. Most of McCann County's young men ended up fighting in World War II, so the corrupt sheriff ended up appointing a bunch of ex-convicts as deputies. These deputies exerted control over the citizens of the county with an iron fist. While the boss Cantrell machine controlled the law enforcement, it also controlled the newspapers and the schools. During the war, two servicemen on leave were shot and killed by boss Cantrell Hitchman. The servicemen of McKinn County heard of what was going on back home and were chomping at the bit to get back home and do something about it. The whole place was ripe for a showdown when McKinn County's GIs were demobilized and headed back home. When they got there, the deputies targeted the GIs. They were running around four or five thugs at a time, jerking up every GI they could find and just taking their money. They were seen as extorting little pipsqueaks, all made legal by the boss Cantrell machine. Then came the prelude to the August of 1946 election. Boss Cad Trail was going to run again for sheriff, while Pat Mansfield ran for the U.S. Senate, which was the seat vacated by Boss Cantrell. Why, you ask, would they do that? Well, they swapped out because they thought Boss Cantrell had a better chance winning against the GIs who were fed up to their ear sockets with the corruption of Sheriff Mansfield and these crooked deputies. Boss Cantrell whose period as sheriff had been pretty quiet, figured they wouldn't hold any of that against him. The county had around 3,000 returning military veterans, making up about 10% of the county population. Some of the returning veterans resolved to challenge Boss Cantrell's iron-fisted control by fielding their own candidates and working for a fraud-free election. A meeting was called in May, and veteran ID was required for admission, of course, and a slate of candidates was elected by the GIs. There were several beer joints and honky-tonks around Athens, and of course, since the GIs were now organizing, they started having trouble with the law enforcement as they started making a habit of picking up GIs, beating and fining them for pretty much 
anything at all. They were making a racket out of it. After long, hard years of service, most of them were just hardcore veterans of World War II who just wanted to sit in the VFW and either drink their beer or liquor without being bothered. Now, <clears throat> when this kind of stuff happened, the GIs got madder than a Pentecostal holiness preacher in a nudist colony full of alcoholic sex workers. The more GIs they arrested, the more they beat up, the madder they got. Now just picture it. Ex-convict thugs acting as deputies with no more sense than to continually harass and practically rob battle-hardened military veterans. Don't take rocket surgery or brain science to figure out well, one way or another this is going to stop and it ain't going to end good for somebody. The members of the GI Nonpartisan League made their list of candidates and nominated a well-respected and decorated veteran of the North African campaign, Knox Henry as candidate for sheriff to post Boss Cantrell. Large contributions made by local businessmen to the GI's campaign ensured that it was a well-funded machine, although many of the McCann County citizens believed that Boss Cantrell would uh, just rig the election again like he always did. So the veterans came out with their campaign slogan, Your vote will be counted as cast. Well, by now, well aware of the methods of Sheriff Mansfield and his henchmen, the GIs organized a militia called the Fighting Bunch. The militia was organized by Bill White, as he said, to keep them thugs from beating up GIs and to keep them from cheating in the election. Mr. White created his organization carefully. He started organizing a bunch of GIs and soon learned to get the ones who were frontline warriors and who had actually done the fighting firsthand and didn't care, as he said, to bust a cap if need be. Now, Mr. White took what money he had and bought pistols so some of them could maybe have pistols that he had 30 men organized, and he wanted to make sure they were armed. Sheriff Mansfield, once hearing that the GIs organized, also organized for the upcoming election. He had 200 deputies, most of them neighboring, from neighboring counties, some from out of state even. And he hired them at $50 a day. Well, that's $657.42 in today's money. Not bad. Doesn't sound very fair, does it? I agree. The sheriff better go get some more deputies and a couple of hundred body bags, too. Mountain folk and mountain tactics are what frustrated the British during the American Revolution. Not to mention that these GIs were battle-hardened on top of all of it. The day of the election polls opened on August 1st, 1946. Normally there were about 15 patrolmen on duty for the precincts, but there were about 200 armed deputies who were running around McKinn County like they owned the place for this election. In Etowah, a GI poll watcher requested a ballot box to be opened to be certified as empty, like he was supposed to do and was allowed to do by law. Well, he was immediately pounced on, beat down, arrested, and dragged to jail. How dare he ask such a thing of the boss Cantrell machine? In Athens, the local Walter Ellis protested irregularities in the election and was also pounced on, beat down, arrested, and charged with what was explained to him simply as a federal offense. 
which was never specified. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Deputy C.M. Wise prevented an elderly black farmer, Tom Gillespie, from slipping his ballot into the box at the Athens Waterworks polling place. When Mr. Gillespie and a GI poll watcher raised an objection, Deputy Wise cracked Mr. Gillespie in the face with a set of brass knuckles, causing him to crumple to the ground and drop his ballot. That meant that his ballot was no longer official because he had lost possession of it. He then got to his feet and attempted to run away from Deputy Wise, who uh, he hadn't done enough yet, apparently, so he pulled his pistol out and shot Mr. Gillespie in the back. He was taken to Forey Hospital, where he received treatment for a bullet wound. Amazingly, the 45 caliber bullet had entered his body and passed through without injuring any vital organs or blood vessels, which was a miracle in itself. Now being really worked up, the GIs gathered in front of Mr. L.L. Schaefer's hardware store, which was used as an office by their campaign manager, Jim Buttram. Mr. Buttram telegraphed Governor McCord in Nashville and the U.S. Attorney General Tom Clark asking them for help to ensure a lawful election, but were left twisting in the wind, waiting for a response because they too were Boss Crump's henchmen. When a group learned that Sheriff Mansfield had sent fully armed guards to all the polling places, they met at the Eskeny Garage where they decided to arm themselves. Sheriff Mansfield arrived at the waterworks and ordered the poll closed. In the commotion that followed, Deputy Wise and Deputy Carl Nell took two poll watchers, Charles Scott and Ed Vestal, at gunpoint and held them hostage. Somehow, Scott and Vestal escaped and ran toward the GIs. This was followed by gunfire, which sent the crowd diving for cover. Deputy Chief Bo Dunn and two deputies took the ballot box to the jail. Of course they did. How else can you hide voter fraud at this point? Two other deputies were sent to arrest Scott and Vestal for what exactly? Well, I guess because Boss Cantrell said so. That's why. Those deputies waded into the crowd like a couple of John Waynes and were promptly disarmed and detained by the G.I.s. When they didn't come back, Boss Cantrell sent three more, who tried the same thing, getting the very same results. GI advisor and Republican Party chairman Otto Kennedy asked Bill White what he was going to do with the deputies. Mr. White said, I don't know, Otto. We might just kill the SOBs. That's when Mr. Kennedy's liver shriveled down to chicken size, and he said, oh, Lord, no, I'm not having anything else to do with this. Me and my brother and son-in-law are getting the heck out of here. Then they ran off. Many of the crowd left with them. This just getting started, folks. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bell. Now, even though many folks had run off, well, the fighting bunch, who now numbered 60 strong, and boys didn't go nowhere. Then they took the captured deputies out to a wooded area 10 miles from Athens, stripped them naked, tied them to a tree, and stomped their ever-loving daylights completely out of them. I bet they did more than $657.42 in damage to them, don't you? Well, back at the 12th precinct, the GI poll watchers were Bob Harrell and Leslie Dooley, a one-armed veteran of the North African theater who'd lost his arm in battle. The polling place was commanded by Deputy Minus Wilburn. Deputy Wilburn 
tried to let a young woman vote who Mr. Harrell believed was underage and had no poll tax receipt and was not listed in the voter registration. Mr. Harrell grabbed Deputy's Wilburn's, Deputy Wilburn's wrist when he tried to deposit the ballot into the box, and Deputy Wilburn, well, he promptly busted Mr. Harrell upside the head with a blackjacking, kicked him in the face when he went down. Deputy Wilburn then closed the precinct and took the GIs and the ballot box across the street to the jail, where Mr. Harrell was then brutally beaten for his trouble and was dragged off to the hospital where uh, and he put in the room next to Mr. Gillespie, who was now resting in stable condition. In response to all of this and the cussing and taunts from the deputies and the actions so far that day, Commander Bill White of the Fighting Bunch told his Lieutenant Edsel Underwood to take five or six old boys and break into the National Guard armory and take weapons. The Fighting Bunch then yanked the front door keys out of the hands of the caretaker and entered the building. They armed themselves with 60 30 alt 6 infield rifles, two Thompson machine guns, and all the ammo they could carry. As the polls closed and counting began, except, of course, for those three boxes taken to the jail, the GI-backed candidates had three-to-one lead. When the GIs heard the deputies had taken the ballot box to the jail, Bill White said, boys, they're doing something. I'm glad they done that. Now all we got to do is whip on the jail. Well, <clears throat> at least they knew where the ballots were anyway. The GIs realized that they had broke the law and that Boss Cantrell would likely be getting reinforcements by the morning, so they needed to do something right then. The deputies, of course, were obsessed by their own corruption and never felt the need to train in military tactics, and they were just thugs who beat up people and took their money. What they were in for, it never occurred to them. Now, on the other hand, the GIs, being fresh out of World War II, knew every modern military tactic under the sun at that time, which was combined with the resourcefulness of the hillbilly heritage. By taking up the second floor of the bank across the street from the jail, the GIs were able to reciprocate any shots that would come from the jail with a barrage of cover from above, and believe me, when 30-06 cover comes at you, you're going to know it. By 9 p.m., Boss Cantrell and Sheriff Pat Mansfield, George Woods also, who was the Speaker of the State Senate and the House of Representatives, I mean, and the Secretary of the McKean County Election Commission, by the way, and uh, about 50 deputies were all stuffed in jail, pilfering through the ballot boxes. Mr. Woods and Sheriff Mansfield made up the majority of the Election Commission and could actually certify and validate the vote count from right there within the jail even without the rest of the ballot boxes. Isn't that convenient? Commander White split up his group with his Lieutenant Bucklanders, who was the one who took up the position in the bank overlooking the jail, while Commander White took the remaining force over by the post office next to the jail. The Battle of Athens began as Commander White called out, either you bring those ballot boxes out here or we're going to set siege against the jail and blow it down and take them. Seconds later, a whole place lit up with automatic weapons fire topped off with gun blasts. And uh, Mr. White said, I fired the first shot. Then we all started shooting. A deputy ran from the jail, and I shot him, and he continued as he wheeled and fell inside the jail and crawled the rest of the way in. The deputies outside the jail apparently realized that maybe they should have thought this one through. 
ran around like the rear ends were on fire, trying to reinforce or maybe take refuge in the jail, which was stopped by cover fire from Bill White's fighting bunch. Located on the bank, uh, in the bank across the street. Some of the henchmen inside the jail managed to duck out the back door and threw down the weapons as they ran off, thinking, to heck with the 657-42, I'm on home. Mr. White, being a military tactician, then ordered his forces not to shoot the escapees. After all, they just weren't cold-blooded murderers, and they'd accomplished what they tried to do. One of the escapees was George Woods, who had by this time telephoned Birch Biggs, the big boss of the next-door Polk County, and requested that Boss Biggs send reinforcements to wipe out some of these GIs, to which Boss Biggs replied, You idiot, those are battle-hardened combat veterans. What do you think, I'm crazy? For the veterans, it was either win before morning or face a long time in jail for violating state and federal laws, which were in reality being broken by the ones in the jail, but without the ballot boxes, they couldn't prove anything. <clears throat> there just wasn't any going back now, win or else, and else would likely mean a trip to the gallows. Rumors started to spread that the National Guard and state troopers were coming. Commander White made a demand every hour for the government thugs to surrender the ballot boxes. The GIs attempted to bombard the jail with Molotov cocktails, but uh, weren't able to quite throw them far enough to reach the jail. What do you want to bet that ain't that didn't stop them and they ain't going to quit now? Well, you'd be right about that. As the GIs came up with an alternate plan to use dynamite, which they could throw far enough. Oh, well, almost. So, at that time, an ambulance pulled up to the jail. The GIs assumed it was sent to remove the wounded, and again, they, being not being cold-blooded murderers, held their fire. So suddenly, two men ran out of the jail and jumped into it, then it sped off. The two men were Boss Cantrell and Sheriff Mansfield, the ringleaders of the whole fiasco. They just AMF yo-yoed every poor person in the jail to left them to clean up their own their mess. I, I wonder if they bothered to pay the poor saps their 657-42 before they made a break for it. Note here, if you ever get involved in something like this, demand payment up front, right? Oh, what's AMF yo-yo? <laughs> that means adios, my friend, you're on your own. That's when GIs lit up the dynamite and it was deployed. Bill White said, we taped two or three sticks of dynamite together and put a cap and a fuse in them. Light it up and throw it. They still couldn't get them all the way to the jail, but they got them far enough where they blew the cars up end over end and landed them on top on their tops. A matter of fact, the first bomb landed under Bob Dunn's cruiser, flipping it on its back. Then the fighting bunch do they had to do better. <clears throat> Commander White said, We're going to have to get some charges up there on that jail. So let's make a couple of charges and I'll go doing the place of myself. So Bill made a couple of charges, crawled up and put a charge in the jailhouse porch. In fact, he placed three of them and they went off almost exactly the same time. One completely destroyed Sheriff Mansfield's car. The other was on the roof of the jail, and one went off against the jail wall. Now that was enough. The bombs caused damage to the jail and blasted debris all over the place as the door of the jail was dynamited to bits. At 3.30 a.m., 
the deputies inside, some with some injuries and none of them life-threatening, surrendered and the ballot boxes were dragged out and handed over. By early morning, George Woods, yes, the one who was in the jail pilfering through the ballot boxes with Boss Cantrell and his ilk before he ran off like a scared rabbit out the back door, was calling back to ask if he could come to Athens and certify the election of the G.I. Slate. Commander White reported that when <clears throat> the when we broke into the jail, they found that they had tally sheets marked by, by the crooks and then had scored 15 to 1 for the Cantrell forces. When the final true tally was completed, Knox Henry was elected. During the fight at the jail, rioting had broke out in Athens, mainly targeting police cars. This continued even after the ballot boxes were recovered, but ended by morning. The mob also destroyed the cars of deputies, many being easily identified because these guys had out-of-state plates. Well, I guess you'll have that when you mess over hardened combat veterans. During the whole mess, the mayor of Athens was on vacation, and the city p- policemen were nowhere to be found. At least they had got had the good sense to get out of town, didn't they? On the beautiful morning of August 2nd, the town was all quiet. Some minor act of revenge happened, but the public mood was one of absolute euphoria, likes of which hadn't been experienced in McKinn County in a long time. Governor McCord ordered the National Guard to activate, but changed his mind and rescinded the order. The morning saw the, <clears throat> the GIs <clears throat> excuse me, saw the GIs call a meeting where Treasurer Harry Johnston opened the meeting, observing it was necessary because for some reason or another the sheriff's forces were not around. I wonder why. The approximately four hundred people in the courtroom <clears throat> elected a special committee headed by Methodist Minister Bernie Hampton joined by C.A. Anderson and uh, Gobo Cartwright, both members of the Businessmen's Evangelical Committee, to preserve law and order. George Woods, the escaped secretary of the County Election Commission, had a handwritten message. Next day at 10 a.m., I will sign on an election certificate certifying that the G.I. ticket was elected. I bet he will. I guess nobody was taking his call, so he had to write a note. The New York Times front page reported that Sheriff had been killed and that the shooting had started with a shot through the jail window with the demand that hostages be released. Then the Times reported deputies refused and the siege ensued. They reported shots being fired, 2,000 persons milling around, and at least a score of fistfights were in progress. Well, folks, it's the New York Times. Uh, I don't expect too much accuracy from a paper that detested just mountain folks to start with. Later, the veterans turned responsibility for maintaining order in Athens to Police Chief Herbert Walker. The GIs said that they were still holding control of McKinn County until September 1st when Knox Henry was to be installed as sheriff, though. August 2nd also saw the return to McKinn County of McKinn County of Sheriff-elect Knox Henry, who had spent the night August 1st in safekeeping in the Sweetwater Jail. Sheriff Henry, a 33-year-old former Army Air Force sergeant, said that they were going to kill me yesterday and I had to leave town. In adjacent Meigs County, another use of weapons was a, to affect electoral change occurred. On August 5th, the Meigs County Election Commission certified Oscar Womack as sheriff. Womack, Mr. Womack admitted to 
to the reporter that he had ordered some associates to burn a bunch of pre-marked ballots. The ballots were found in the Miggs County Courthouse the day before the election. Sheriff J.T. Pettit claimed that the Pickland ballot box was taken at gunpoint by Womack and companions from the county clerk's office. There was little we could do to stop him. He was armed, and the four men with him were armed, Sheriff Pettit said. The recovered ballots certified the election of the five GI nonpartisan league candidates. Among the reforms instituted was the change in the method of payment and the $5,000 salary cap for officials. In the initial momentum of the victory, gambling houses in conclusion with the or in collusion with the boss Cantrell regime were raided and their operations demolished. Deputies of the prior administration resigned and were replaced. Ballots, when tallied, proved a landslide for the GI League. Scores of veterans were present when Speaker of the House of Representatives and Secretary of the McKinn County Election Commissioner George Woods was marched into the county courthouse under the guard of the GIs. Speaker Woods hadn't been seen, of course, since the gun battle to jail. He certified the election as a landslide for the GIs. Bill White, commander of the fighting bunch, was made a sheriff's deputy and worked at that job for many years following the incident. In early September, the fall of the McKinn County political machine was followed by the resignation of Athens Mayor Paul Walker and the town's four aldermen. The resignations met with popular approval. The resignations came after a nighttime shotgun blast through the front of Alderman Hugh Riggs' home. They had previously refused a demand to resign, but changed their minds immediately after the gun blast through the window of Alderman Riggs. The Battle of Athens was followed by movements of veterans and other Tennessee counties promoting a statewide coalition against corrupt political machines in the upcoming November elections. Governor McCord countered an attempt from a GI political league by directing the young Democrat clubs of Tennessee to recruit ex-GIs. There were strenuous efforts by the Boss Crump Organization, based in Shelby County, to counter the GI organization. And here's a shocker, folks. It didn't work. The Battle of Athens came in the mid-1940s when there was much concern that GIs returning would be dangerously violent and initially received criticism in the press. Amazingly, nobody was killed in the skirmish that took place that day. There was no telling what would have happened, though, if the fighting bunch had not won the day, finally breaking the corruption of McKinn County. Just a note, Deputy Wise was the only person to face any charges from the events of August 1st and 2nd of 1946. He pled guilty to felonious assault with intent to commit murder in the second degree and was sentenced to three years in the Tennessee State Penitentiary and, of course, only served about one year before being paroled, and he never went back to Athens, Tennessee. Maybe the words of founding father Thomas Jefferson fits here when he said that a little revolution is sometimes a good thing. It keeps those who abuse power in check. I'd like to take a minute to thank those who left the reviews. Anonymity, listeners CG, and Melissa the Writer. Thank you so much for all of your kind words and your five-star rating. That helps so much. I will be reading your reviews here shortly. Uh, We went long today, but I will get them next time. But thank you so much for your input and your ratings. 
I hope you have enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe or follow us on whatever you're listening on. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report, then uh, go to anchor.fm or Spotify and uh, they'll fix you right up. You can get the extra episodes of all three podcasts for $1.99 a month. Please join us in Facebook group. Uh, I won't mention Twitter anymore because they keep taking us down. But, well, the Facebook group is Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or uh, whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then. <laughs>